welcome to the Ecobot Podcast, where we dive into what matters most for 21st century wetland scientists. And let's continue on our journey in respect to the convergence of wetland science and technology. I'm your host, Jeremy Shavey, and on today's episode, we'll hear from our panel from episode nine, Kim Ponzio, Jeff Ingebrigtsen, Bridget Wagner, Scott Denham, Darren Laux, and Daniel Martin, as they answer questions about the wetland-centric technologies that they're using in the field and in the office, and how they're affecting workflow and efficiency. Let's get into the questions. As your organization has begun to step away from using more traditional pen and ink and, and paper to the utilization of uh, data collection applications, how have you seen your organization's workflow improve as well as the management of data? So why don't we start with Kim and then we'll go over to Bridget. The data flow, well, for iNaturalist, that has not been something that's been that widely used. Again, we only kind of just came out with it a year ago. I think folks that are using it at the, at the Water Management District are using it more for helping with identification of species when they first see them. So getting to know them as sort of a, a guide or tutorial in that way. Um, I had some people ask about the different projects, like if, if Florida Natural Areas Inventory is using it. I do not see that, but I see that the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission has very heavily using it where they've opened up projects. Um, and so they will share other people's observations in those projects. So resource agencies in particular, FWC is using it. Uh, like I said, we're using probably more on a personal basis. I know when it first came out, I suggested using it for some of our inventories to some of our land management folks, and their concern was the privacy of the data, uh, especially regarding T&E species, and that's why I mentioned that, that you can go ahead and keep that private if you want to keep that private. So in that regard, I think iNaturalist has been more of a learning tool for us, and we're just kind of getting into it. That being said, some of the other uh, applications that folks talked about with ArcMap, ArcGIS, Arc Explorer, Collector, our agency is using that quite a bit. And our collector has been really great because those that know how to set it up, get it set up for folks that are not necessarily tech savvy. And they uh, can just tell them, this is how you enter the data. And so we have people that are doing um, invasive plant management where they're doing helicopter surveys and they're using the collector app while they're up in the helicopter to enter that data. So it's really streamlined that data flow right there and made it much more predictable than, you know, writing it down on a piece of paper or field book and then going back and trying to put it into um, ArcMap or something like that. Great. Thank you. Bridget? Sure. Thanks. So probably echoing a lot of what uh, Kim just said, um, you know, going from this paper to digital transformation, uh, our company has truly embraced it. Um, you know, we have a lot of different disciplines and groups and, you know, especially starting with the environmental group, you know, the, the sheer amount of data and the types of data that need to be collected, seeing that you could do that digitally and it could be clean the benefits were pretty obvious, even, you know, besides the, you know, the other time or the labor benefit or the costs of a project overall, just seeing the benefit in the field and how much cleaner that the data could be collected and then streamlined into GIS since our company has been using GIS forever. And it's always been primarily just to make maps. And now that we have these applications, whether they're this off the shelf or, you know, these custom standalone, we're showing them that you don't have to be 
you know, a heavy GIS user or even a GIS analyst to be able to, to leverage these, these maps. You don't even sometimes realize you're using GIS. It kind of feels similar to looking in Google Maps or Google Earth. And as much as I, I don't like to promote those uh, basic map applications, um, sometimes it helps to be able to talk to staff in our company like that and to show them, you know, whatever discipline you're in, there's always a spatial component to it and we can streamline it out of the paper world and just make everyone's life easier. And I think, you know, going with that transformation as well, that's what's helped more folks embrace it is that they're seeing that, okay, you know, we give them the ideas initially of how simple things can be collected and then the wheels start to turn of, okay, we can use this for project management where, you know, I'm not the one in the field collecting the data, but I can still be a part of that field process and be able to oversee you know, how my staff are doing this and how the project is progressing. So being able to kind of centralize everything in that paper to digital using Esri has made what we like to call a bunch of our project managers believers in uh, GIS and just the field apps in general. So um, it's been, I would say, nothing but success and it's just continuing to be, you know, evolve and be more successful. Great. Thank you. Mm -hmm. well, well, so Daniel, I've got a, got a question for you, piggybacking off the back of Bridget's response there. Uh, are there any significant advances in Esri software, the GIS suite of tools that you feel uh, relates to wetland science? Like what's, what's on the horizon for us as modelers and planners? Yeah, thank you, Jeremy. That's a great question. The, the, the biggest thing is something that we've all kind of been dancing around here, and this is the centralization uh, and move to web GIS from uh, more desktop-based uh, systems. With that, it enables data that is collected in the field to be instantly available throughout the entire organization. Uh, and people, you know, say you have a field, field crew out, they come back, they upload their data at the hotel or whatever, and then everyone in the organization can instantly see that that very same day. So that, in my opinion, and, and from the years that I spent in the field before I was at Esri, I think is, uh, is, is the biggest sort of uh, single advance is this kind of web GIS ecosystem. Uh, and then as far as specific updates, there's nothing I can speak to right now, um, but every bit of our software does have an update schedule. And so whether it's uh, quality of life improvements uh, or, or major releases, you can expect to see those usually between uh, two to four times a year. That's great. I know one of the things that we've been pretty excited about that we talked about with our Ecobot and Esri meeting a few weeks ago is the the new integration has taken step to the next level and being able to record, you know, your wetland units and cells out in the field. You actually see that in the Ecobot app. Uh, similar to like you'd be able to see it in Collector and be able to export those. And just for a small one-day project, I was able to shave another couple hours off because I was able to just take what we had in Ecobot, dump it into Arc Online, and boom, maps were done. That was exciting. I was like, wait, this took like three minutes to do this. This is super exciting. So it'd be interesting to see again how this like this new ecosystem of all these different pieces of software and hardware, how how they come together. Well, just to, to add one more thing, uh, one thing I'm, I'm very personally excited about is seeing what sorts of new analysis uh, mm. comes out of all this data. So we're in this situation where we have lots of folks going out and getting data or aggregating this data in a centralized form. And now it, 
opens up very easy analysis that people can do. And I think that that is going to be really interesting to see in the future what, uh, what sort of trends and things we can find by leveraging this massive amount of data with the, uh, with the ge geographical analysis. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I guess, you know, the next thing that kind of pings in my mind is thinking about the actual like hardware, like what we're on the ground with, you know, we put up an image of a bunch of different devices that people are using now. I've been using the, the Tremble R1. I know a handful of other people that are involved here have also been using that. And so I guess my next question is gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pivot a little bit. You know, when your organization is determining what type of GPS device or receiver you're going to use, like, how did you make that decision? And so I guess, you know, I'd love to, I'd love to hear from Jeff on that one. Uh, as far as what specific devices we're using, our decision was primarily influenced by what we could get the Fish and Wildlife bureaucratic device purchasing process to, to allow. We, we didn't want to have to deal with, like, I don't even know what the process would be to set up like a government phone line so that we could have cell data. Um, so we just, we have the GPS enabled iPads just with the wireless so they can come back and, and upload the data when they're back at the hotel or gas station or whatever. We didn't really even get into like, what would we like to have? It was just, what what can we get? What's the easiest that we can get with as little paperwork? Uh, I'm sorry if that might not be as no, that's, that's <laughs> relatable. I think that's important to hear from from the government side in that. And so let's let's pivot and switch gears. So so Scott, how did you guys decide to use what you were using? It looked like you were using EOS devices. Yeah, we were. Um, we've been using the EOS devices. We've gone from the era 100 units all the way up to their new gold unit. Um, in the past, we've used the Trimbo Geo 7 Series stuff. I think some of it's the, the it was the size of the GPS itself, carrying it around, being able to use the EOS and Aero units and put it into our collector. It seemed to talk really well with it and able to put our maps right on the iPad. And at the time, we were having to pull a lot of data into the Trimble. Since then, Trimble is definitely built on and made some other things and you know we're actually interested in trying like the r1 some different things as well but we kind of got into where it worked for us for it talked nice with survey one two three it talked nice with our collector and different other things that we were using and our data kind of came out clean and we we're able to manipulate and edit on the back end with our gis guys that really seemed to make that just the best option for us you know, right now, plus the size was a lot smaller and able to put on backpacks and walk around. So that's pretty big when you're walking up and down mountains, needing your hands to grab stuff. It's kind of hard to have a big clunky GPS or a pole with you at all times. Yeah, great. You know, some of us as scientists only use GNSS devices, GPS receivers occasionally. You know, sometimes the cost can be really prohibitive on some of these units. And so you know, in some conversations that I've been having with Darren recently is, you know, they're starting to come up with some more cost-effective solutions that uh, may make sense. And so I thought, Darren, this might be a great time for you to just talk a little bit about some of those solutions that you guys have been coming up with that can allow more people to access those submeter accurate devices. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Jeremy. You know, Trimble's been in the GPS uh, game for, for a long, long time. And with the move from uh, all-in-one device like the Geo Explorer, 
we've seen you know the adoption of, of BYOD. So we've come out with a number of products to address that market. And DR1 is a, a small, it's about the size of a deck of cards, um, lightweight, all day battery. And then the R2 is uh, more feature forward, varying level of accuracies depending on, on what suits your needs. So um, between those two, and then we are promoting more and more is, is Catalyst, and that is a software-based GNSS receiver, uh, which may sound kind of weird, but um, it, it allows for a very inexpensive, uh, high-accuracy uh, data collection. Um, right now, it's available for Android only, um, but we are working on the ability to support iOS. And this allows you to subscribe to the accuracy that you need um, based on your application. So if you need submeter, you can you can purchase either monthly or hourly usage of that device, and it really brings the cost of entry way way down to uh, the high accuracy GNSS world. In the last conversation, Darren, we had we were thinking about maybe uh, partnering on some case studies with that and exploring see how that might pair with Ecobot with iOS devices, etc. So yep. we'll have more to report back on that in the near future. Thanks, Darren. So, you know, I guess one of the one of the other things that oftentimes we hear in the in this changing environment, so there's sometimes people have some fear, you know, that maybe it's from Matrix movies, things like that, that, you know, software and devices and hardware and et cetera are gonna take over our our job as scientists. And also that some people may lose some of their skills because of utilizing the crutches of technology. So I thought maybe I would invite a couple other people to speak in here to that, just like what your experience with that is. And so, so Kim, I know we've talked about that in a few different respects, but how do you feel about that in terms of potential impacts of technology to our world of scientists? Well, um, I think there's several things that we've done. We're trying to use some uh, remote sensing from satellite data and some other things like that. And uh, just in regards to the iNaturalist app first, when you view the suggestions, something that happens is that it immediately comes up with an answer that you think, yeah, that looks pretty good. And you're not doing all the things you have to do normally to identify, say, a plant. You didn't look at the seeds. You didn't look under a microscope. You didn't really inspect it. Therefore, at least in my experience, you don't remember it as much as you did um, doing it old school. Uh, so there is that that can happen. Um, it's great if there's somebody that already knows it and you don't have to go through all that, but you kind of lose that a little bit. Also, with the remote sensing from satellite imagery that we're doing, we're finding that you have to have that human component to it, that expert that can say, I know what's on the ground. Uh, the satellite imagery and whatever computer learning you're doing um, is not necessarily recognizing that right or correctly. And you need to train the computer to do the job. So I, I feel like you're never going to take the person out of this. We're never going to get to technology where we're completely out of the equation. It's just going to make it easier for us to be able to do our jobs and, and really streamline it. Great. Thanks. Well, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pivot again here. Daniel, we have a question about how an organization becomes an Esri partner and what does that mean? Um, so the uh, what what everyone is referring to here is the uh, Esri Partner Network, and uh, there's different tiers and flavors of that. But essentially, uh, it uh, boils down to a relationship with Esri, where there's a, a partnership around some software, but maybe it's your software at your company or software that you want to develop, uh, and then that 
is developed onto the RTS platform. And there's a, a wide array of resources to help you do that uh, and support through the Esri um, partner network with the ultimate goal of uh, going to market. Esri really wants to see everybody succeed. And so we try to bring people onto the platform and then connect them with key people in the industry. Uh, it goes onto Esri's version of the app store. Uh, and then that network part, I think, is the really important thing because it is a, it really is a network. So you are able to, depending on the tier, you get some conference passes, you get uh, training, and it is kind of this immersive experience with the idea of getting people uh, around that have common interests around common problems, kind of providing tools to solve them. And I think that's what really brings us all together here, Daniel, you know, whether it's people from the Society of Wetland Scientists, private consultants, federal, state organizations, software providers, like we're all a member of the same community and all working towards the, the same goal, better planning, better management, better decision-making. All right, so there's, uh, there's another question here for Darren in respect to the uh, Trimble R1. Someone's having some difficulty with submeter accuracy under canopy cover using that. I'm not sure if you saw that in the Q&A, but they're wondering if upgrading to your Trimble Viewpoint RTX correction service would help with that. Yeah, so the, the R1 is a smaller device. It, it doesn't have a large ground plane. It's not intended for the very difficult GNSS environments. Uh, the correction source, which is Viewpoint, that won't really matter. It's still a matter of uh, being able to see a clear sky. There are other devices out there that are more suited to difficult or harsh GNSS environments. The R2 from Trimble would be one of those. It uh, can go up on a backpack, on a pole, on a backpack. The EOS arrow that was mentioned earlier, um, also a better solution for those difficult GNSS environments. So you want something that's up above your body, uh, something that has a large ground plane. And even still with all those considerations, uh, in some places, you, you're just not going to be able to achieve submeter. It's just the nature of, of GNSS. It's very weak radio signals coming from 11, 12,000 miles in space. So it's, um, uh, you know, next to buildings can be difficult and under harsh canopy, you're just going to, you're going to run into difficulty. And that's where solutions like a, a laser rangefinder could help you. Um, you could stand out in the open and, and shoot a laser at the target that you want to collect. And, and that eliminates a lot of the, the difficulties of capturing GNSS positions under canopy. Great. Well, really want to thank all of you who joined us in this conversation today as presenters and as panelists. Just wonderful to work with you all again on being able to offer this out to everyone who is interested. I, uh, I honor each of you for what you're doing in this world and thanks for collaborating. I look forward to more. Thank you for listening to the Ecobot podcast. If you like what you heard, take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe. If you'd like to learn more about how Ecobot is helping transform the industry and to see what we can do to help your company, you can find us at www.ecobotapp.com. I'm Jeremy Shavey, and I'll see you next time on the Ecobot Podcast.